Welcome to episode 19 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today is going to be part two of evidence-based supplements for athletes. So Aidan will get us kicked off. Uh, well, we're going to start with beta alanine and we're probably going to do a podcast on this at some stage. We haven't done one on this yet, have we? No, okay, I don't think so. <laughs> we're going to do one of this at some stage, so I'll try and be brief with this. But it's basically beneficial for anybody who does any kind of exercise that lasts really 60 to 240 seconds is where it's most evidence-based, but it seems to go up to about 10 minutes. And it's got to be intense. Like you've got to be working as hard as you can. So for example, if you're doing a set in the gym that takes 60 seconds, but you're not hitting anywhere near failure, it's like, it's not helping with that. Like it's got to be actually intense. And it's the same kind of concept where it's like anything where you feel that lactic acid build up, like that kind of concept, it's going to help with those exercises. Um, so yeah, pretty relevant. Once again, even CrossFit, like it really fits in with CrossFit. Like a lot of events can be like up to 10 minutes in that kind of time range. So it like makes a lot of sense for that and you like really feel that burning feeling. So it's like pretty useful for that. In terms of how it works, so it basically increases carnosine in the bottle, in the body, sorry, and this helps prevent pH from dropping. So that's basically how it works and that in turn helps reduce feelings of fatigue and reduces that lactic acid buildup feeling. In terms of how to take it, this is a bit of a hard one to answer. So basically, the research seems to say anywhere from like 4 to 6.4 grams per day is probably the amount that we want to be taking. But one of the issues with beta-alanine is it gives you like a tingling slash like itchy feeling. It's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's called paresthesia. And... Some people get those a little at like 1.2 grams, like they will feel that. Whereas other people, it's like significantly higher. And the issue in the research is that like 6.4 grams taken daily for six months still doesn't reach optimal muscle carnosine levels. It's once again something that builds up in your system over time. And that therefore means you really take as much as you can handle, basically. 100%. Yeah. And, um, just as a bit of an anecdote, like I, I thought I was a massive outlier. Like I, I've had over six grams, um, without feeling anything. I got up to 10 grams without really feeling anything. In hindsight, I can look back now and be like, oh, actually I did feel some stuff. I just didn't link it together. And the other day I took accidentally like 15 grams. Like I just like, did I tell you about grams? this? Yeah. No. <laughs> so like, so because I didn't get any things and I, I have this opinion of you just take as much as you can kind of handle. Um, I just started free pouring it. I stopped measuring it. And then one day I poured out a little bit too much and I was like, eh, YOLO. <laughs> and I just had it. And then like, I probably had it at like eight o'clock and at 8.30 I was like, pretty tired like I'm pretty nauseous I might just go to bed and then it was like laying in there like pins and needles kind of feeling like really itchy and like nauseous and like yeah just overdose on bad alanine that's crazy because you, you don't experience that at all in like lower in, doses in hindsight now I'm like there was like two times I can pinpoint back and be like oh I was actually itchy and I just thought I was itchy. I thought like, I was like, what's wrong with my clothes? Like, why am I so itchy? I, it was just because I'd gone so long not feeling anything that I'd even just forgotten that I was expecting to feel something. I get that I feeling that. even at lower doses. Pretty yeah. much every single time I take it. I'll yeah. actually specifically use it so I take less uh, rest during set, like between sets. Yeah. Which is like not the application it's really meant for, but it makes me... Yeah, hurry my session up. Yeah. And that's why I use it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've got way more empathy now for people who say that because before that I was like, what? I don't feel anything. But yeah, yeah. it's horrific. <laughs> All right. Next one is vitamin D. Um, so like so many of these supplements, such a wide range of applications and so many different things it impacts on. But I think if you're 
vitamin D deficient or you have low vitamin D levels, it is so worth fixing. Um, and that is from so many different aspects. So obviously you have the, the calcium absorption and bone health part of that. So we're all pretty aware of, of vitamin D's, uh, I guess, role in, in bone health. So other things that it could be helpful helpful for in regards to athletic performance is that it potentially improves uh, muscle strength if you're addressing a deficiency. Um, it can help with atrophy of type 2 fast twitch muscle fibers, potentially improve VO2 max, once again, if you're addressing a deficiency, um, and then roles in improved immune function um, and reduced inflammatory markers. So when I talk about vitamin D with my clients, I do talk about like this spectrum in terms of like a doctor will tell you when you're vitamin D deficient, but they won't necessarily feel the need to address like low or mid range yeah. vitamin D levels. But I think there's there's a big difference between being vitamin D deficient and having optimal vitamin vitamin D stores. Um, so even if you're at that lower end of the range uh, and you're an athlete, you could be benefiting so much from getting it up to the higher end of that that you know healthy range. Yeah, and even with some like sports, it becomes far more relevant. Like I've been like just because I'm going down that row of like listen to a lot of like basketball trainers and stuff like that. Um, people who work with NBA athletes in off season, they make the valid point. that's like, these guys are like on the court so often insides. Yeah. And then when they're out, they're like recovering. They don't really have energy to be like outside all the time. And it's like, and often being honest, like they obviously have darker skin in a lot of cases as well. It's like almost all of them end up with vitamin D deficiencies or they need to address it or whatever. Um, that's like such a, um, what's the word? There's so much potential, so much like such an easy win. An easy there. win. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that's relevant way outside of like athletes and exercises as well, just from a general health perspective, but something to be mindful of. Think yeah. About. Yeah. And it's um, not Australian data, but it seems about like 30% of the population are deficient. And I would say about another 20 to 30% are in the suboptimal range. And like when you look at it from that lens, like that, that's why it becomes a question that I ask everybody to spend. Like, Have you got a recent blood test? Have you ever tested vitamin D? Even if like I don't necessarily think that somebody is at risk of it or anything like that, I always go like, well, when you next get a blood test, just chuck that on. Like, let's just see. Just see. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. So then the next one that I'll talk about is going to be iron supplements. So basically really simple with this one. My thoughts are anybody who is deficient, address it, um, whether it's iron supplements, whether it's food. But like if you're going down the iron supplementation route, that makes sense. I see this a lot. I don't know if you see this a lot, but like a lot of people with iron deficiency who aren't necessarily doing anything about it. All the time. Yeah. More often than not, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really surprises me in the most empathetic way possible because yeah. it's like such a, it is such an easy win. Like it's not necessarily easy to solve. Like there can be um, complications that come with supplementation. Like constipation is one of the biggest like issues that people seem to run into, but there's other options and it's worth like, at least discussing with your doctor, seeing what you can do. But like from an athletic perspective, well, just general, general life, we know you feel more fatigued if you're deficient in iron. Hard to be super motivated, train really hard, all those kind of things, do everything you can to be the best athlete you can when you feel fatigued all the time. But then there's also aspects of performance, like there's issues with oxygen transportation, um, reduced VO2 max, exercise capacity, lower volume of red blood cells, I just talked about like the poor man's blood doping in the last episode, but it's like, there's a reason people do that. There's a reason like why athletes do that. And it's like, we at least want to do what we naturally can. Like we want to be maximizing 
that. And then we also know that iron losses are higher in athletes due to sweating and also the breakdown of red blood cells that occur. Like if you do running or anything like that, like there's a bit more breakdown. So it's like we, we do want to address that. In terms of how I actually address that with my clients, I don't know if you're more specific with me, but I one of the few things where I'm just like, I respect your doctor, like just like sort of that, like I kind of brush it off, but it's kind of like they will be able to give a clearer recommendation than I can. They can work through all of those issues in terms of like what if general iron supplements cause issues for you. They can go and talk about iron transfusions and stuff like that that I can't do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love a good iron infusion. Yeah. So I feel people that have to supplement for like three to six months to get their iron to a good level. Yeah. Oh, an iron infusion makes so much sense. Like that problem is gone in 24 hours. Yeah. It's solved. And yeah, look, it's a little bit expensive. So there is that barrier. But I always say to my clients, like if your doctor offers you one, take, take it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So the next one is probiotics. So... Probiotics, once again, not something I am super sold on from a range of different perspectives, uh, but there is a potential use of probiotics in immune function that could be, uh, you know, in relation to to athletes. Um, So there is a little bit of research to suggest that uh, probiotic uh, consumption could decrease the risk of upper respiratory tract infections in athletes, particularly when they have very high training loads and they are at risk of that. Um, so it's one of those things, like if you are at risk of, of those kinds of infections because you're, you're an elite athlete, you're training all the time, you're working towards you know, an event or a goal or something like that, it makes sense to maybe tack this on. Um, it's not something I've ever recommended in practice. I don't think I really work with the athletes. It's applicable yeah to. it's usually endurance athletes like yeah. some of the studies have been done on rugby players as well and it's like sure. really like overreaching phase it's like i, I want like it, and that's kind of what you're saying but like it's not just training hard it's like it's training hard for you intentionally overreaching and like when you're in an overreaching phase your performance usually actually drops off yep. because you're overtraining um and that's like that's part of the overall periodization plan or whatever but i really want to put that out there because like a lot of people will be like yeah train hard that's true yeah 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 but it's no it's when you're really really pushing the bounds of things and you're not able to recover and therefore have reduced immunity um, as a like a byproduct of of that um so it can make sense in, in that regard but it's very it's what we call strain specific so any kind of So probiotics have a range of different things they could be helpful for potentially, but it's really specific in regards to what strain of probiotic you use. Um, So the International Society of Sports Nutrition does have a a good position statement on this where they do list um, all of the, the probiotic strains that could be useful in like within this, um, what we're talking about here, uh, which if this is something you're interested in, I would urge you to look at that because I'm not going to name them all yeah. here now. And it's something that we've spoken about how it's like, there's, there's never any good like recommendations of being like, this is probiotic you should take. Like no, nobody, there's no product, product recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's like really hesitant to do that. And like after looking into it, I see why. Like yeah. if you, And that position stand, like the way they did it is basically just like, these are all those strains that have been shown in research to have positive effects. And often you'll look at these products in the stores and they actually cut, there's so much overlap and it's like, well, they actually probably do cover in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why it's like, well, when you think about it from that perspective, it's actually hard to name a specific one because there's like 10, 20, 30 different It could be options. a lot of different supplements yeah. that would be suitable. Yeah. And there's other things like in terms of like GI symptoms as well could help with that, like mm-hmm. runner's gut and stuff like that. And like one that I'm far less sold on, but it's, it's in there is like reduced DOMS. Like you reduce delayed onset muscle soreness is another potential benefit too. 
So next one will be pre-workout. Like, I don't know, I want to be quick with this one because basically pre-workout is just often cobbled together, like multiple ingredients, all those kind of things. And it's all the stuff that we've, we've talked about. Like almost always it will have caffeine. In a lot of other cases, it'll have beta alanine, creatine, citrulline, malate. We've talked about all of those. Citrulline or citrulline malate, obviously you need an acute phase. Makes a lot of sense to have in pre-workout. Beta alanine, like that's one thing that builds up in your system over time. But if you go back to that kind of thing about how it um, causes that tingling feeling or the itchiness and all those feelings that people don't like, it's not a bad thing to have like another two grams here and there, like every now and then, like that's that's fine. Creatine, like obviously once again, it makes sense to supplement that individually, but it's not necessarily a bad thing to have in the pre-workout as well. You just don't necessarily need that. Some people talk about how having a pre-workout could improve absorption, but if you have it consistently enough, it's not going to matter. Um, and there's a few other ingredients like that in there that usually are going to help improve performance a little bit as well. I always want to point that out because like a lot of people act as if there's like nothing in there that's helping or they just say like it's only caffeine or it's like, but like even if we just use the citrulline example, like it's going to improve performance. Um, and the, the other thing I did mean to touch on was um, bad alanine and that tingling feeling. Often they put that in there. <laughs> So people feel it. Like, oh, this is working. This <laughs> yeah, is great. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like it's just a bit of that placebo and stuff like that. Like even to the point that some pre-workouts don't include beta alanine, but they include high dosages of B vitamins, which give that same feeling. It's a safe feeling. It's not harmful or anything like that. But it's also, that's not what's actually helping you. It's just a feeling. It's just a thing. What about non-stim pre-workouts? Yeah. So often non-stim pre-workouts are basically similar things in terms of that, that kind of pump Thing, like that citrulline malate very similar they've got citrulline malate they might have like aakg which is a similar product as well as just and they might have other like nitric oxide promoters as well so like those are all things that allow you to get a bit pump but also improve performance as well a little bit as i mentioned when i was talking about citrulline malate does that improve muscle growth like i i the theory makes sense to me like it does make sense to me mm-hmm. but we have studies like if you take creatine for 12 weeks you gain more muscle the studies don't show that with citrulline malate yet. So it's like, even if that is helping, it's not a clear enough benefit to really matter. Yeah. And I always think when it comes to pre-workout, if I have a client and they're like, I really like this pre-workout. I like how it makes me feel. Like, yeah. Cool. Keep taking it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next thing we're going to talk about is glycerol. Um, so glycerol basically allows you to be hyperhydrated. So there's a level where you're you're adequately hydrated and then utilizing glycerol, you can get past that point of being kind of adequately hydrated that you wouldn't be able to get without it. Um, so it can allow for you to have an extra, like up to a liter of extra water in your system. Um, and then it's usually combined with sodium to eat further improve that, that hyperhydration. Um, so you can uh, retain 72% more water uh, than sodium alone if you're using glycerol and sodium together. Where that is actually going to be useful um, is when you're doing any kind of endurance exercise specifically that is where sweat rates are going to be high, you're going to lose a lot of water, and you're really going to struggle to not become dehydrated. So we really want to avoid losing more than 2% of our body weight due to fluid losses when we're in an event or when we're training to keep our performance high. Um, And there's not always going to be adequate you know, fluids available to you at certain times. Or you can only take on so you much without only, feeling sick. You can yeah. only take on so much. Like there's so many barriers to to not becoming dehydrated that for some athletes, it makes sense to 
lean more towards this hyperhydration, utilizing glycerol and a sodium protocol. Um, there is some relevance to lifters and bodybuilders in that it can give you like a bit of a pump. Uh, whether that actually leads to any increase in muscle mass, like I personally don't think so. It's murky, um, but you know, it could make you feel good. You get a bit of an extra bicep pump so I can see why yeah. some people would be drawn to it in that way. Another idea that I've thought about, and like it doesn't seem like many people are using this, and there's other options, one of them which we'll talk about next actually, but um, for that kind of thing, getting a pump, is like what about on show day for a bodybuilder? Like if they get a better pump. True. Like there's obviously you can take it too far, but like they might look a bit better on stage. Like that's something yeah. I have seen some coaches use, but not many. It's not super popular. Yeah. And going back to um, kind of those sweat rates is we do know that sweat rates are higher when you are hyperhydrated, which can actually have a flow on effect to being um, like having a cooling effect. Uh, so if you're in a very hot and humid environment, being hyperhydrated and having those higher sweat rates may be beneficial to delaying fatigue. Um the only issue I once again have with glycerol is very similar to when we talked about bicarb is how you actually go about taking it. Um, so you need about 1.2 grams per kilo body weight um, and then you of glycerol and then you combine that with about 26 mils per kilo of fluids. So putting this into context, if we're thinking of like a 75 kilo athlete, that would be 90 grams of glycerol in two liters of fluid and then you'd consume that over the course of an hour, about 30 minutes before exercise. Um, talking about like how you're actually going to buy glycerol, I think is the most interesting part because yeah. the glycerol you actually buy, it's not targeted as a supplement. It's not like, I guess, labeled in that way. Yeah. It's, it's like for topical skin and use. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd buy it from the chemist and it's for use on, on your skin. Um, and then it does sometimes say on the tube, like not made for human consumption. Yeah. So I'm always a little bit worried. Uh, like I've never, I've never done this to the client. Um, but would, would you recommend it in that case? No. So once again, I, I, I do work with a lot of endurance athletes and I haven't actually done it, but like, it does make a lot of sense to me. It does seem to help. It does like, particularly like imagine being on a really hot day, yeah. high sweat rate, all those things, like it makes a lot of sense. I, I just haven't used it with anybody yet, but like, after we mentioned it on a previous podcast, like I actually have tried it since then and another logistical challenge came up because like once again, I did try it. It was quite a lot. I felt uncomfortable doing it, but like <laughs> it's a really sweet taste. Like it tastes like putting honey in water basically, except yeah. it mixes through really well. So but at least more palatable than bicarb. Yeah. <laughs> and that got me thinking, I don't want to put you on a spot, but like I, I, um, I was like, this tastes really sweet. Has it got calories? Yeah. And... How many calories do you, would 90 grams have? Can you think of it off the top of your head? I don't want to just oh estimate gosh, a random I number. I can't remember. But I remember doing the actual math in terms of like that 75 kilo yeah. athlete using 90 grams of glycerol and it being like a ton of carbs and a ton of calories. Yeah. So it comes out, like, I'm not sure if it's actually carbs. Like I think glycerol is its own nutrient. Sure, yeah. So, but it's like similar. I think it was like, I think it was about 500 calories. Yeah. it's kind of like logistically like for a race, Yes. But then even that is like, does that contribute to gastrointestinal distress? Because you've just taken on an extra 500 calories. Like, I don't know. But then the other thing that like I think about is like, if we're going to the pump aspect for somebody who's just going to the gym, are you going to take on 500 calories just to get a bit pump? Obviously, it doesn't make sense anymore. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's another logistical challenge. So it might improve performance, but like even going back to actually endurance athletes, like 
you'd have to trial it in training leading up to it, but you also wouldn't try it so often that you're taking on 500 calories for no reason, basically. You wouldn't want to try it, yeah, all yeah. of the time and utilise that in training. And I think taking on two litres of water as well, like two litres of water and 500 calories 30 minutes before exercise. It's a lot. It's a lot more than I typically recommend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the next one that I kind of alluded to, but we'll talk about now is beetroot juice. So beetroot juice is just another kind of thing that it increases vasodilation as well. So it's a great source of nitrates, which convert to nitric oxide and that leads to improved vasodilation. In terms of like performance for endurance athletes, super, super clear on average for a 5k run, it improves performance by about 1.5%. That's not massive, but that's not small. And it's such a consistent benefit. It seems to be the better trained athletes get, the less of a benefit they get from it, partly because they might already have adaptations. Like maybe their blood, like they get better vasodilation anyway. Like maybe that's just a natural thing that happens as you get better at being an athlete. Um, But even that people are theorizing you can just have more beetroot juice and it might solve that problem too. So that's something to think about. Um, in terms of lifters, I, have, have you watched the Game Changers? Did you watch that? I actually didn't really watch all of it. Yeah, classic. That's, that's your niche. I'm surprised. Anyway. <laughs> I know. So, like, I, I did watch it and there was, like, one line in there that I was like, oh, i got to look this up. But, like, they talked about um, beetroot juice and bench press performance. And they, the study, they, they actually misquoted it. I can't remember the exact number, but I think they said improved bench press by 19%. And I was like, sick, I'm going to go I'm gonna go around Valhalla telling all my powerlifters to that. But like, I was like, that's clearly overhyped. So I'm like, I'm going to look at the study. And what the study actually did do was um, they looked at 60% of one rep max. So if you can bench 100 kilos, you'd be looking at 60, 60 kilos. How many reps you can do with that? And on the first sets of the group that was taking beetroot juice, got 20 reps, then 15 reps on the second set, and then 12 on the set after. So it's pretty clear they trained to failure because there was a big drop off, obviously. Um, but they got 17% more reps than the group not taking beetroot juice or the crossover and everything like that. 17% more. So it's not the 19 that was quoted. And it's it's in terms of reps to failure on a high rep set. It's a pretty big improvement. And once again, it helps get a better pump. But like, does that carry over to better muscle growth? And then the logistics of it once again is it's pretty expensive. Like a shot is four or five dollars so that's the other thing so like how to take it the amount you'd need to take because like a lot of people are like oh yeah i eat beetroot regularly it's fine <laughs> like no like if you're eating beetroot it's a kilo of beetroot you need to eat to get this benefit and the way to take it is 500 ml of beetroot juice but that's still a lot so i'd rather take the concentrated shot form so 70 ml shot 30 to 90 minutes before training or exercise if you're taking it for endurance purposes you're not going to eat a kilo of beetroot 30 to 90 minutes. That'd before. be a lot of beetroot. Yeah, so the shots make a lot of sense. It's even better if you take it daily for up to six days, and then after that, the benefits appear to plateau. One of the good things, though, beyond all everything else we just talked about, performance enhancement and stuff like that, is it's high in antioxidants. So it's like you'll, you'll get other benefits from it. It's high in micronutrients and everything like that. It's still, it is still vegetable juice. It still has other benefits. But endurance athletes makes a lot of sense. Lifters, like I wouldn't go out of my way, but if you have all the money in the world and you happen to like it, maybe take it occasionally is how I'd go with it. Awesome. So that wraps up episode 19 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast and we'll be back next week. Thank you.